Throughout history, free thinkers have outraged the religious with their wacky ideas about the virtues of free speech, reason, and of course, eating babies. Now, God is dying, and it's time to dispose of his remains. From the pits of hell, Satan sends two puppets of the imperialist West and the Zionist Jews against God, Islam, and tiny kittens to bring you their propaganda and conspire for a new world order. This is Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment with Ali Rizwi and Armin Navabi. Welcome, everybody, to the first guest episode of Secular Jihadists for a Muslim Enlightenment. Uh, this is the new revamped um, podcast, um, and I'm your host. My name is Ali Rizvi. I'm the author of The Atheist Muslim, A Journey from Religion to Reason, and with me is Armin Navabi. Uh, he's the Iranian ex-Muslim founder of Atheist Republic, which is the largest online platform for atheists worldwide with over 1.7 million members. He's also the author of Why There Is No God. So hi, Armin. How are you? Good. Thank you. Welcome. And what we're going to do is we're going to get right to it. So we're really, really honored today to speak to um, the first book guest on this podcast, uh, which is Sarah Hader. Sarah Hader is the co-founder of uh, Ex-Muslims of North America, which I think most of you listening to this have, uh, have probably heard of, and uh, you've probably heard of her too. So hi, Sarah. Welcome, and thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so excited. Yeah, me too. This is so exciting. We, I've been waiting for this episode for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is great. So it has been, and uh, so what I wanted to kind of start with, and this is sort of the theme of what we want to talk about a lot this year, is that last year, 2017, um, well, let me start with, you know, less than 30 years ago, we had Salman Rushdie and we had his whole fatwa, you know, with his, um, he was sentenced to death by Khomeini and he had to go into hiding underground. And then last year I saw conferences. I had, you know, there are books out on the same kind of topic that are blasphemous to Islam. There are, there were, there were riots over cartoons as little, little as 11 years ago. There were, I mean, two years ago you had Charlie Hebdo um, and the attack there. Now they're all over the internet they're they're everywhere online there are thousands and thousands of uh, ex-muslims former muslims secular muslims uh, just out there talking openly um showing who they are uh, walking freely and having open dialogue it, it, especially here in the west i mean i don't want to downplay it and say that it's like that i mean there's still a huge amount of risk everywhere but uh, last year we had uh you know, we had the Muslimish conference. We had the uh, ex-Muslim conference with Mariam Namazi in London. Uh, we had our this podcast. We had uh, XMNA and their tour. Right, you, you guys started the Normalizing Descent tour. So, how are you feeling about this? You guys started uh, how many years ago? Uh, three, four years ago, like some, some, somewhere around that. We're a relatively young organization, um, but I feel like we've grown. I mean, it feels like it just was, it was yesterday when we started because of yeah. how quickly things have progressed and there's never been like a moment's rest, but it's, it's wonderful to see all these activists, you know, coming up and, and talking about their experiences and what we want to do with Exorcism in North America is to try and give them that platform as often as we possibly can, because, you know, you see what, what you see with Muslims or, or any other 
organized, you know, group that, that actually has some real political power. You see that they have, they have institutions and the institutions are able to, you know, hoist up, um, those that show promise and show talent and, and give them the resources that, that anybody, you know, that, that aspires to have kind of a stage or maybe a voice in something and, and gives them those resources. Um, you see this with Linda Sorsor, right? And she's, dis- she's dependent and on, on some extent to the organizations that she's affiliated with because they've given her that platform. And it, it, there are things that organizations can do that institutions can do that an indi- for an individual to accomplish on their own is very difficult. So I think what we need to do with ex-Muslims is build those, those organizations, build those institutions. Um, and that's what we've been focused on, especially this last um, in 2017 and 16, these this, these last two years where we've really like gotten our feet, you know, just gotten everything together a little bit. Um, we started the Life Beyond Faith videos. Um, and I don't know how many of your listeners are aware of them, but you can, you know, you go to our YouTube channel, Ex-Muslim North America YouTube channel. And we have the videos there. And the whole idea was uh, I wanted to capture ex-Muslims who are not activists, um, not well-known people. And just talk about their experiences and share their stories. Yeah, their personal you know, stories. It's, it's actually really moving. I've seen many of them, and and we, I actually learned about, um, I think Obeid and you know some of these other guys. Yeah, Obeid from there. and, and Gada is all around too. She's she's speaking yeah. a lot. So there's a couple of people who have now become a lot more active due to the videos. And the idea was, you know, if you if you're an activist, you're 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 somebody who nobody knows. You're trying to get your name out there, get your ideas out there. People might not take you seriously, but if you can say, "Hey, look, here's this 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 organization who covered me, and here's this video that they had," and and if you see the video and it looks like it's a high quality video, it, the idea goes that that these people who are seeing it say, "Okay, well, this person must be they might be they must be worth something." You know, it might be there's a reason they were covered, so let's give them a chance and let's let's you know. So, so we've been, we've been focusing on that for the last two years. That's a really good point because one thing that happened is for the longest time, and Armin, I, I think I've talked to you about this before, is that I, all the stuff that I used to do, I just used to annoy people around me and my family and everybody. This is, I'm talking like 12, 13 years ago. And then I started writing about it. And once the article showed up in a sort of a professional looking format online, mm-hmm. you know, some people in my family were like, oh, wow, he's a writer. And, then, and I was saying the same shit that I'd been saying to them that annoyed the crap yeah. out of them. And then when, when my book came out, the day my book came out, my mom, who'd always been saying, you know, you're, you're a little too hard on it. You have to be more respectful. Uh, she, she said, congratulations, your book's out. It'll do well. Oh. In, and then she said, it'll do well, inshallah. Oh. And I'm like, that wow. was the blurb. <laughs> like, I should have, that should have gone on the book cover. Uh, but it, it, it front, is true. Front cover, yeah, when, you, when you see those, when you see things that are done in a, in a way that is sort of publicly recognizable and, and, um, accessible it is very powerful for for individual people that's why i think you know what you guys do with the videos is amazing that's really funny because my mom prayed to god that atheist republic becomes successful <laughs> yeah no, see <laughs> there you go there is a, is a something's happening i don't know what's happening but something it sounds but, but one thing about ex-muslims of north america uh, that doesn't get enough attention i mean these more recent the life beyond faith videos are, are what people see the normalizing descent is is what people see but a lot of the work that people don't notice because they're not supposed to notice is the work that goes into make um, connecting ex-Muslims in cities in North America together the and building yeah. building the community. And I think um, it's most people don't understand how valuable that is. 
and how much work goes yeah. into what you guys do to create a safe environment for ex-Muslims because because we I mean it was suggested to us that we do something like that and I was like nobody has nobody can do something like that well it's absurd the amount of time suck is uh, just absurd and if you took a look at the you know the volunteer if you added the volunteer hours and staff time together that x spends on anything then the building the communities takes up just just an absurd amount of it. And it's something that most people don't know, don't even know that we do. And they don't see the value of it because they don't actually interact with the communities and we're all, uh, we're underground. Yeah. It's only, it's no, it's only something that ex Muslims can take a part in. So it's something that people don't see, but uh, it is something that I think is perhaps the most valuable aspect of what we do. Because if you take a look at the life beyond faith series, every one of those people um, are people that I know of because of the communities. Otherwise, I would have never heard of them because they're not people who said that I want to be an activist. Exactly. So, exact. Sorry, go on. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, it's it, part of the communities that you see, I see these people that, that were, you know, just, they had no interest in activism. They had no interest in, in being more outspoken. And then they meet others like them. And then they hear stories that are similar to theirs. And they think, oh, well, you know what? You know, I can do it. I can take this step and I can speak out a little bit. And if Exodus in North America can give them a platform, then that's that's wonderful. We have more faces out there. I think it's one of those things like when it comes to when it comes to understanding something as a movement, um, people count people's people see things in the way a toddler sees things. You know, that 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 um, with, with, with kids, they see like one and they can measure they count one and two and, and three. And then it's just like many. Right. Like in their in their heads. Right. There's 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 a few and then there's just many because they, they can't count that far. Um, and I think when it comes to movements, it's similar. So if it's like, if it's Ayan and, and Mariam Namazi and that's it, then it's just a few people. But if it's, but if it's three, four, five, six, seven, t- you know, 10, 11, 12, then it's a movement, right? They don't, they don't see it as now 12 individuals. They see it as a movement. They see it as an ideological thing to take to, that, that they need to, that they need to address rather than a few people who are misguided and, and leading others astray. But but one thing other than that, a valuable thing that I had no appreciation for because I thought you live in Canada, so this is a free country, you get to say whatever you want, is that unlike Sarah, unlike Ali, and like myself, there's a lot of ex-Muslims here, even in North America, that can't yet yeah. come out as an as, yeah. as ex-Muslims. And when I went to the Vancouver, by the way, one thing that Ali, you should have mentioned in the intro, I'm a proud mem- member of ex-Muslim of North America as well. And I go to as many meetings as I possibly yeah. can. <laughs> well, so, there you have it. Yeah. So when I go to these meetings, most of these people, we're the only people that know that they're ex-Muslims. Yeah. Yeah. Their family doesn't know, their friends don't, nobody knows. And this is their only outlet and this for i can't even imagine how many people are out there that are now have a community now have an outlet that they could tell people who they are because of ex-muslim of north america because of the hours that went into screening people and creating a safe environment for people to find other ex-muslims in their city and i gotta tell you like when whenever i started this um Barely, I, I knew there were other people. There would be almost every sort of, even family gatherings and stuff I'd go to, there'd always be somebody come and they'd talk and they'd just very quietly say it. Um, and it, they'd sometimes reach out, but it was very rare to find anybody who would speak about it openly. Um, and now I, I, I meet people all the time who are just completely public with it. They're, 
and you, you ask them, you know, there was a time you'd ask them, do your parents know? And they'd be like, no, no, there's no way they can know. But now when I talk to them, they're like, well, yeah, they have a, they have an idea. They know I don't pray and all Things that. are changing. They, it is. It yeah. is. It is. And it's been in such a short time. And I think, uh, mm-hmm. you know, just organizations like XMA and like they've, they've done a lot to do it. Like, so I, another example I wanted to give was one thing that a lot of people on my um, feed, especially relatives and stuff, were not involved with this stuff. They're sort of religious or liberally religious. Was the video that you did on Sayyid Rizvi? Sayyid Rizvi is like uh, this yeah, guy yeah. in his sixties. So he had the same. No. Oh, sorry. In his sixties. Is he? No. Oh, how old is? Oh, should I? He's he's like eighty three, eighty four. Oh, okay, well, he looks a lot younger. Because he looks younger, but he's in his eighties. Uh, that's amazing. So if you're if you're yeah. if you leave Islam, you're gonna look a lot younger than than you are when you're older. That's a, that's a lesson. But I, so not only did you share the same name as me, a lot of my relatives saw it, and then they saw it, they're like, "Wow, this guy's like my dad. He's like my grandfather, and he's totally cool with it. He's he's doing this, and it somehow gives it a because um, the biggest thing that's kind of holding them back is their elders and you know the whole cultural thing and. So when they see that, that's really powerful too, and um, that that's something I never saw. I, I don't think a lot of people mm-hmm. saw it before those videos came out. So, you know, but so in addition to the videos, you also now have. But can we the, get the, into the questions now? Because sure, the, sure, here, yeah. yeah. Because okay, so uh, reasons a reason on faith in the live chat is asking. I've seen ex-Muslims coming out with aliases, but I suspect that if one ever wanted to speak publicly, such as writing for a large newspaper paper, you would have to use your real name. Yeah, obviously, I guess, right? So what's the, what's so the question? So I, I guess like... No, no, uh, newspapers do use aliases, but usually they, they, they you have to declare that. All it's right. Aliases. So my question, that's from, that was from the live chat. My question though is, um, have you, so you guys have done a very amazing job at creating a community for ex-Muslims. Um, but one thing I was wondering if you guys are mo- going to move into in the future is reaching out to Muslims and advocating for re- leaving Islam, like actually like telling people, giving reasons, actually encouraging people to leave Islam. Is that something that you mm. guys consider ever doing? Well, it would be something I think we would like to do in like, the the dream scenario where we where we are able to handle what we already have on our plate and at the moment it the the problem of just just giving providing enough resources for ex-muslims um and enough platforms for ex-muslims is is a very big one um so i think if we if we grow enough certainly that's that's the next that's that's somewhere we'd like to go or at least start to engage in those conversations i don't know if necessarily we'd want to proselytize because that's not the mission of the organization necessarily but if, as an individual activist that's certainly somewhere i would like to go i i, I do i don't like the word when you say proselytize it seems like it's negative i think um everybody has no, no yeah. i mean i mean in, in the sense that uh, we are there to support the people who were already they've already reached a certain community. right so it, within our communities like we don't let people who are confused or who don't know and they're just trying to figure it out we say okay not yet all right when you when you know you right. come to us uh but otherwise uh, that that's not really like uh, helping people through their journeys is not necessarily something that we're that we're capable of handling or particularly interested in handling right. at the moment uh I, I do see that as something that might change if we were to have 
just more resources right. out I mean, there. A lot of people tell um, atheists that well, you're advocating for atheism. You're basically the same as religious people, Christ uh, like Christians and um, Muslims evangelizing. And I tell them, I don't see any problem with Christians advocating for Christianity and Muslims advocating. Yeah, Everybody should go out and advocate for ideas and the best ideas win. That's not the, that's not the part of religion we yeah. have a problem with. But, but Armin, I have a, a, just a question. When you talk about um, talking to people and trying to get Muslims to leave Islam, I mean, there, there's a, do you mean actively going out and trying to convince them? Or do you, because a lot of times that happens when you have things like this tour, or the college campus tour, or the, uh, the, you know, when people hear a debate or when you have a debate with them, like you have had many debates with Muslims where you just talk about things right. that are. Um, right. Like, so, so for example, so maybe it, in the future, they would have a tour with debates with Muslims, right? Or like they, they would have, um, not, um, groups where it's not so heavily screened where people know that and Muslims are invited and ex-Muslims that are out are invited for them to have like a meaningful discussions and like non have non-alcoholic drinks and sit around and talk to each other skim milk <laughs> lots of skim milk <laughs> boo so talk I'm not joining. <laughs> no, no, but I mean, like, it would be, I mean, maybe in the future, but if that's something, I mean, you're the main ex-Muslim brand out there in North America. So if there's any group that is going to push for advocating people leaving Islam, I think I would like to see, um, I would, I would love to see you guys move into that direction. So, so there is something to be said, though, and I, I agree with you that, you know, in the, on the horizon, that's best case scenario, that is somewhere we might be interested in going. Um, but I think that just, just by mere one existence and two, by voicing the problems that we've had with faith, we already are participating in that, you know, proselytizing process. Even if we're, we're not doing it directly, we're doing it indirectly, but I know for a fact that it's influenced people because we screen people. So, right. So people come in and they'll be like, oh, well, I saw this video and, and that's what it got me to question. So I know that the mere existence and, and. Um, acknowledgement of the issues that we see has been has been enough to move some people out of the faith. But as far as doing it in a more direct sense, uh, I agree that it's something that needs to be done. But I think that appeals to a lot of people with with um, emotional that emotionally appeals to them, right? Uh, but I think a lot of Muslims they want the intellectual debates mm -hmm. discussions, like different kind of Muslim. And it's not this is not good forcing people. This is there are a lot of Muslims that are actually hoping that somebody comes and debates them. And you have a mm -hmm. really great asset on your team, which Muhammad Sayyid would be a great person to debate against. Like you have Muslim and Muhammad Sayyid, uh, you know, against each other. That would be an amazing ex-Muslim versus Muslim debate. So you know, I was I was I, I was listening to something. I think the the Majid Nawaz um, interview that you had in the old the previous version of this podcast, and I was wishing that I I would like Muhammad Muhammad Sayyid to talk to Majid because I, there was a lot of places where I know that there would have clashes, and Muhammad is so so educated on like the intricacies of like the verses and the the context that. That there would be, there would be just a very direct debate there um, that I would love to see happen, and if you guys can make it happen, that would be great. Yeah, what do you, what are your views on the reform movement? Actually, uh, I'm not a reformist. I don't consider I, d I don't like that. Yeah, I know I know you're not. But what do you what are your thoughts on it? And and uh... yeah, none of I, I think I think we'd share the similar views, which is to say that I think it is it is something that people want to be true. It is something that people hope can happen because it seems like the like the most likely thing uh if you view uh if you view 
religion as as just like set of practices that people can abandon one by one and then and then reach this this some some mildly secular secular place but i think that's not the way that most muslims view religion and i think most muslims view religion as a as a truth claim like they really think this is the 100% true way of looking at the world and when you when you intellectually drop one it follows that the rest are 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 should, should, must be dropped as well it follows that none of it is real and i think that's something that's hard for people that grew up in the west to understand because they've never been raised with a religion like that i i, I mean obviously uh, there are conservative uh, christians and, and jews who, who who have been raised in that, in, in that way but the vast majority of people who call themselves religious do not understand religion as that like all encompassing way of seeing the world the way that I think Muslims do. Yeah, I, I wanted to say, uh, sorry, Armin, I just wanted to make one point in terms of the title of this part. One of the reasons that we call this the enlightenment is because I, I think that I, I'd like that term to take hold, especially when it comes to uh, the Muslim and ex-Muslim communities, because there's a direct analog historically to uh, the, I guess, the Western or the Christian enlightenment, and that's something that people recognize so they can draw an analog. And um, the second thing is, what another sort of precedent that there was is like when reform, when they talk about reinterpreting scripture, but maintaining the claim that it's infallible, I don't think that's effective at all. That's useless. It actually, it almost makes the person look dumb when you're trying to say that, no, actually, you know, kill your wife means kiss your wife or it it doesn't make any sense. But when you actually, if, if reform had this idea of uh, proposing that, scripture is not infallible if they were just getting rid of the idea of infallibility um then that is sort of like a baby step approach that i think would make a lot more sense than rather if it's than, fallible it's not it's useless yeah right if it's if it if it can be wrong it's useless as scripture the whole point of scripture is that it's the truth and if we cannot rely on it as a as an authority then then i mean and i and i understand because i, I read some of the arguments you know i I'm so, I'm so interested in like Galileo and his and the whole thing that happened with the church and 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 there's all these interesting letters that went on during the day when he what when he discovered through the use of his telescope and he he's actually like what a lot of people don't understand about him I'm sorry to derail this but I'm like a big geek about this um he no this is actually <laughs> this is very relevant he so. he was a very technically proficient kind of guy and he he invented a telescope that could see certain things um, that could see some stars and things clearer than, than could other, like he was mechanically proficient, right? So he invented a tool that could see certain things and within using that instrument, he found that, okay, well, maybe, you know, maybe, maybe this whole idea that, that the, the sun goes around the earth is not, is not correct. And it's so interesting to see the back and forth that he had with um, there's this, letter to the Duchess Christina, which he wrote, um, 1630 something. I don't know. Um, but, but he wrote this letter to her and describing to her what his findings and how, you know, truly that, that, that this doesn't, this isn't that, that this is, um, why this should be accepted by someone like her. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating to see them grapple with this, with the same problem, which is that that actually here's here's something that the Bible says which isn't literally true. But how can we accept this thing? How can we accept the fact that the Bible wasn't literally true here and still maintain belief in 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 the faith altogether? That's the emotion. That's the emotional struggle. And I think one one of the 
things like if if the the reform thing if they if they started the reform movement started moving to more towards just rejecting the idea that this is infallible then what people could do is they could and and this has happened in Christianity in the past is they, what they could do is they can say okay they can they can actually cherry pick they can say okay all this stuff in the Quran is bullshit but you know, I like the concept of zakah. Like, I like the concept of like giving to the poor, and so I want to keep that. Or I like this cultural holiday of Eid. I want to keep. So, I, I mean, I'm not saying that they. I, I'm not saying that that is something that. Uh, uh, well, the. Yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that's something that would happen across the board. I'm saying that there's some people who may be more inclined uh, to at least want to keep something in, but have a step, have a way out, right? So. Well, Sarah. So, based on your own argument, I'm gonna I'm gonna try to uh, play the um, devil's advocate and argue for reform. What, like, if like Galileo, if he went and said, "Okay, so this is not true. This is not uh, the Bible got it wrong." So, but if he went and told everybody, "Well, God is not real, but the Christianity is all bullshit. This is this whole faith is you know you can't have uh, you can't use faith to figure out." what uh what what is true or not that would have a he would have a very hard sell to make right why can't he just um if but if he went and said you know what this is what i understand this is how the our solar system works but i'm not making any claims about the bible or christianity wouldn't him just saying throw the whole thing out hurt his cause and wouldn't the reformists have a case then to say just go one by one instead of just throwing the whole thing away. That's not going to be effective. This is what the reform movement is suggesting, that just take the parts that don't make sense, remove those, keep the rest, you know. Sure, sure. Well, here's what I would argue to that. What didn't, what didn't win in that scenario was that, was that Galileo necessarily managed to convince them that it was acceptable to hold that position and still be a Christian. I don't think that's what won in that case. What won uh, with the whole Galileo affair was the fact that the truth is unrelenting and that the church could, they could not deny it any longer. There's a certain period of time where they could deny it. And then, and then the mechanics of telescopes and everything, like they got good enough that they couldn't deny it, even if they wanted to deny it. So it wasn't something that they were persuaded into believing. Um, it was something that, that was almost coerced out of them because, I mean, Hannah Arden has talked about this uh, a little bit. It's just this like wonderful idea from her that 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 I've adopted recently, which was she said that, that there's a coercive aspect to truth. There's, you know, it's there. There's there's nothing you can do about it. You can lie to yourself if you want, but you're can you believe well, your helpless. own lies? Huh? Yeah. It's it's helpless. You know, once you when, the truth the is the truth. The truth yeah, is the truth. You can't, is. you know, so it's not necessarily that, that both things were like, were equally likely and Galileo convinced them of, of one way. It's that the, the truth was always there and it was always encroaching on the, the church's view of reality and continued to encroach until they had no choice. And you see this throughout the, the Catholic church where they had to give up step by step by step, um, just a just a variety of different doctrines because it became impossible to deny it any longer. But it wasn't something that I think they were persuaded into doing where they really felt like it was the right thing to do necessarily, but it was something that they just couldn't lie about any longer. They couldn't deny the truth 
any longer. It was impossible for them to do it and still exist as an institution. So I don't think, you know, from a reform perspective, if we're really depending on persuasion, I don't know if necessarily that'll be the case. The most persuasive thing is the truth. And in some senses, it's a coercive thing because it's hard to deny when it, what's there is there, right? And so, so bringing back your analogy to the reform, you're basically, you're suggesting that what the reform is trying, movement is trying to do is pr to persuade people, persuade people to accept a different version of Islam. But what actually works is to just encourage people to find the truth. And if you give people the tools to find the truth, they are, they are forced to accept uh, some things that are fact and some things as uh, bullshit. Right. But, I mean, look at, I've talked to so many, like literally at this point, because of the screening thing that we do with ex-Muslims in North America, so many ex-Muslims. And I've heard personally, their different stories. And there are very few people who were excited about the, the prospect of becoming an ex-Muslim. Right, who was just like, oh yeah, I'm ready to be in a positive. This is a wonderful step. You know, this is this is where I want to be. We were disturbed every step of the way, and and usually the the choice to to acknowledge, okay, well, I'm not really Muslim anymore, is a devastating one. Is a difficult one. It's not an easy one that you just you're just joyful in making. You don't want to make it. It's something you're you almost feel forced to make because you see yourself as a rational person, and here is reality, and you must confront it and you must accept it otherwise you you can no longer think of yourself as as this 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 rational person and i think there are some some muslim like apologist types who have chosen to make a different decision yeah actually to your point when i was losing my faith i was crying and i was begging yeah. god to show himself any give send me a sign or anything i was scared mm -hmm. of my because he was my only friend and i was really terrified about to, uh, the conclusions that the direction that my conclusions were taking me and i was begging him to save me so yeah it was very uncomfortable you're you're right about that yeah there there's a phase you go through when you're just like okay just give me something give me some sign because you know you're you're losing so much i i think a lot of you know the, many people don't realize this but you know you just simply changing your mind and, and realizing that you don't think a certain way and being compelled by the truth as you say just that can actually mean okay i'm never going to see my family again mm -hmm. my brother's never mm -hmm. going to talk to me again or you know my i'm never going to be able to go back or in my case to the country where i grew up and check out my school and my neighborhood you know, you're wearing a true muslim my concern was burning forever Mm. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah. I know. So for me, like the thing is, I I never fully bought the burning for everything. I always thought that was a metaphor, but I came from a very uh, sort of. Uh, uh, well, well, I, I stopped believing in the burning forever thing. Like when I lost my faith, I also lost yeah. the idea that I would burn forever. But then the fear was losing my losing my family and losing relations with the people. That's that I yeah. Cared that's about. what it was. Uh, that, that's what I think it is for, for a lot of people. Just, you know, your memories of childhood, a lot of things that are associated with it. Um, that, that really is a loss. But I, I wanted to follow up on something Armin was saying about the, you know, when you're talking about the, the truth, you just have to accept it. Um, so now what you have is you still do have a situation where there are a lot of people who are believing Christians, but they think evolution is compatible. And that includes people like Francis Collins, right? Who is, you know, he's the director of the NIH, he was the head of, uh, mm. you know, the Human Genome Project. So he's a brilliant guy. I've actually heard him speak. Um, and, uh, you know, he's as brilliant as anybody, but it, he's a believing Christian and he thinks evolution is compatible, which it obviously isn't. But, um, you know, you also have that. So they take these elements of the truth. They're convinced by Galileo. They're convinced by Darwin. But 
it suddenly becomes even the Catholic Church is like, oh, okay, now you know evolution is probably okay. So it does become a, a part that that I think is another level of it, uh, where they people people still hold on to it, they still want to keep one foot in. So and, um, I, it doesn't make sense to me, but I, I think that there, it is a gradual process. I feel like it's more of a process. And uh, to some people, I've noticed that when it comes to Islam, especially the moderates and and the, I guess the what Phil Zuckerman calls a mild apostates, you know, the people who come from sort of moderate to liberal backgrounds, and then they leave, they tend to be more. They want to adopt like a hippie version, um, or that they're they're more mm-hmm. prone to that whole keeping certain elements of it intact. Whereas the really fundamentalist ones, the people who come from very fundamentalist uh, backgrounds, like Yaz Muhammad, like um, even Armin, the way that he was, when they leave, they want nothing to do with it. That they they just they just like especially people from Salafi backgrounds. I've noticed that they just do a complete turn. They become very hardcore atheists from hardcore Muslims. So that's also kind of an interesting thing how how that happens. But have you have you seen that in uh, or have you had a different experience with uh, all of the ex-Muslims that you've spoken to? Well, and yeah, I I would agree with some of that in the sense that that there is a sense of like there are people who can afford to be romantic. Do you know what I mean? That, that, that's how I phrase it. It's not that it's not that necessarily it's a privilege. This reflects to yeah, it's a privilege. It's a privilege to be able to get to the point where you can see oh well you know like. like uh, the way that the Farid Zakaria kind of, kind of Islam, which is that, to say that he's not a Muslim, right? In any real, in in a way that other Muslims would define being a Muslim, oh, he, well, he, he is he not said Muslim, he's, right? he's yeah, he, he has said that yeah, he, he doesn't believe. So, but, but he calls himself. He calls he still, himself Muslim. Yeah. Uh, he, he still enjoys that label. Um, I think to some extent, those that those of us, and I, I, I can actually count myself uh, among this number that I can afford to do this. I see myself as some, but some of a a privileged ex-Muslim and that's I think why I have a duty to speak out and I think privileged ex-Muslims have a duty to speak out but I noticed it's a that, that with those who are who don't grow up in that kind of extreme background it's easier to adopt this romantic view um, and it feels good that's that's what I think really matters here is that it it feels good for them to be able to say it and we have to discourage people from doing the thing um, doing any kind of thing just because um, it, it just because it feels good, just because it's something that, that, you know, their emotions are saying, well, I feel tied down to this, um, for X, Y, Z reasons. You have to be able to reason yourself out of that because it's, it's very easy to commit horrors. Right. It's very easy to, to, to even justify the most disgusting atrocities if your emotions are tied down to, to, to denying that there are atrocities in the first place. So I think that there's, there's, um, yeah, I agree with you, with your differentiation that, that it depends a little bit on how you grew up and how seriously you took the faith. Um, but I would say that despite growing up somewhat liberally, I did take the faith seriously in a way that I don't know if Muslims that grew up in the way that I did necessarily do. So I think that there's a personal, aspect to it a little bit where it's like a personality kind of thing like are you the kind of person who would say okay if i believe xyz i'm gonna actually do xyz yeah that's ne- not necessarily i, I was like that too I was right. like, if, if i think something i want to live it that way too i don't right. want to be inconsistent right. so, yeah, which is probably yeah. why we're atheists too now right well, this is probably that is definitely why we're atheists i, I think. died because of that commitment yeah yeah um, 
but um, before I ask my next question, uh, Obeid is actually in the live chat. He wanted to say thanks, uh, thanks, Sarah, for making the Life Beyond Faith videos and bringing uh, bringing in voices of ex-Muslim ex-Muslims who wouldn't have spoken out otherwise, and that doing my video made me want to speak out more. So that's Obeid in the live Woo! chat right now. Yay! That's exactly what we were hoping for, and I'm so glad that Obeid like agreed to speak out and agreed to be a part of it. I think it was an awesome video and it helped a lot of people, which is amazing. Yeah, go watch so. it. Actually, let's link to it in the description of this video so people could go watch it. Um, but I wanted to ask, you know, when you came to Vancouver, I remember I asked uh, Sam Harris when he was giving his uh, speak, I kind of challenged him on whether he's, he's against the word atheist because this makes people uh, tribal and some people saying that using that word makes creates like an identi identity politics and stuff. And I was wondering if, if anybody has ever asked you uh, by using the word ex-Muslim, do you think that identifying as ex-Muslims is playing into the uh, identi uh, identity politics? Do you think by creating groups of ex-Muslims, we're going to become tribal? Do you think by constantly mentioning the fact that we are oppressed and people discriminate against ex-Muslims, do you think that we're playing into victimhood culture, do you all these things that we accuse of the regressive left of? Or do you think we're guilty of that? Yeah, that, was like, that was like 10 questions. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right so actually it's three um, okay okay all right so all right. <laughs> let me let me summarize it just so so is using the are we playing identity politics are we going to become tribal by creating ex-muslim communities and are we playing uh, using vic victimhood culture by reminding people that um that we are oppressed all the time are constantly telling people ex-muslims are discriminated against 13 countries want to kill us and stuff yeah. like that so, so, um, I, I have a view on identity politics that I don't know if everybody shares. Um, which is to say that I think that this, this is a word and it's used by a variety of different groups in a way that isn't helpful and it doesn't really describe a phenomena in the way that it is helpful. Um, I will, I will describe it in the way that makes sense to me, which is that, that I see identity politics, that is to say that collectively organizing around um, a feature of yourself um, as something that can that can be both positive or negative depending on what that feature is um, and then depending on what you think this feature um, uh, should should grant you that is to say that if you are if you were in the civil rights era for example there's a lot of people who will say that that was that was identity politics in one way or another that that people for the black people in America gathered together and they talked about black issues and they pushed for change. Um, that was, uh, for change, um, uh, to, to better black communities and to make it easier for them as citizens to participate in, in, in society. And, and many people would define that as something that is, that is identity politics. And I would, you know, in a broad sense, I would agree that that is true, that, that that is a form of identity politics. It's a kind of positive identity politics in the sense that they gathered around a trait that they shared and they talked about an injustice. Um, their, their overall goal was not, was one of equality. They were pointing out, okay, well, here are ways that people like us are facing injustice and we shouldn't be facing injustice. And they were referencing universalist values. They were saying, we are all 
we are all equal and we all deserve, you know, equality under the law and we'll all deserve equal treatment and we are not getting it. Right. So in that sense, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's, it's walking towards justice. And in that sense, if you, if you, that's how you're going to identify, if that's what you're going to call identity politics, then I would consider that as positive identity politics. But what you see, I think more often on the left, and this doesn't directly answer your question, I think, but, but I think these are identity politics, which I would consider negative are identity politics, which claim that there are certain groups of people who have access to knowledge that no one else can ever touch. Right. And you see this, um, with, 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 you see this played out on, on just absurd social media discussions, um, where people will say, well, you're a white guy. You know, I, I think Linda Sersour had this, had this kind of similar encounter where some white guy talked to her about, uh, he, she was giving a speech and he said, well, you said X, Y, Z. And she said to him, well, well, first of all, you're a white guy telling me, you know, uh, and th this is a, but this is, this is a, a reference to a kind of identity politics that is extremely harmful because what, what it's saying is that me as, as a brown woman, I have access to a kind of knowledge that you as a white man never have access to. You will never be able to access, which is why if people like Sam Harris have difficulty talking about, if I said the exact same thing Sam Harris said, I would face less backlash than he did. Um, and there, there are lots of people who wouldn't come after me in the same way that they would come after him because him as a white guy to say those same things mean something different than me as a brown woman to say something. Um, and what this, I think, underscores is this, this ideology that says that, well, if depending on how you're born, depending on how you're identifying, you actually have access to different kinds of different kinds of knowledge. Am I making sense there? Or am I yeah, just yeah, yeah, no, that, that actually, I think we're all aligned on that. And I, I know we've talked about this before as well, is that when you start saying that, you know, on the basis of their, because of their experience, some people don't have access to certain kinds of knowledge and they can't, then uh, you make discussion impossible. You become, make it, make advocacy impossible. Your discourse, mm -hmm. rational discourse becomes impossible. And the only place that leads to more identity politics, because now it's not about ideas anymore. It's more pro progressive discourse becomes right, impossible exactly. because the whole idea of getting to a progressive society is us persuading each other that this is the right course to take. But if you say, well, you as, you know, a brown man or a black man or a white man can never reach this conclusion on your, you never access the knowledge on your own. You must just bow down and listen to me. Then, uh, then we're never going to be able to get to that progressive place where we all are persuaded by the same thing together. Instead, it's kind of a weird domination thing, right? It's this, 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 this one group has this access to think as access to knowledge that nobody else has. I think this, um, idea of, of experience, which is important, of course, like I, I know that I have a certain experience as a woman as um a brown woman too and i was raised in texas again i wasn't i wasn't raised in some like super liberal like place i was raised in texas and and i have certain experiences that i know that my male white friends don't have um but that doesn't mean that they're unable to understand what it feels like to go through this that they're unable to understand how it affected me that they're unable to understand the injustice of it if persuaded right and that the progressive politics has depended on the majority being having the ability to be convinced by the right thing and actually do some things that are not necessarily in their interests.
and move forward towards a more progressive society. Yeah, very well said. Yeah. The, yeah, that's a very good explanation of it. The way, the way, let me know if you agree with this. The way I think about it is that if your identity is being used uh, to target you, then you can use your identity to ask for protection. Right. So if you're a Jew under Nazi Germany, if you're a Yazidi under ISIS, if you're a Christian in um, Egypt, right, if you're a, a gay person in Iran, then if your identity is is a target sign on your back, then you could use that identity to ask other people that don't see eye to the eye with the people that are targeting you like this, is my identity, please help me. Right. They're using this identity. That's where your identity is actually, you need not, it makes strategic sense to tell people if you, if you're a Yazidi and ISIS coming, the fact that you're a Yazidi makes a big difference to me. I want to help you more than other people. If you're a Sunni Muslim, I'm going to grab you and bring put you in the helicopter and maybe not the Sunni Muslim, right? So your identity really matters at that point. Or if you're, yeah, if you're a yeah. Jew under, in Germany, then I'm going to hide you in my, uh, you know, in, in, in my basement, but not if, not if you're a, a white guy, right? So, I mean... Yeah, and the same thing goes like... Black men who are stopped uh, by cops, uh, or, or who are shot by cops, or you know, w- women who are sexually harassed, who you know, people just didn't believe them for many, many years, and uh, now, so that their identity actually forms a, it's, it's sort of the nexus around which their experience was built, and to be able to communicate that, but, but, but that's the thing. Like if you, uh, to your point, Sarah, if you, if you start shutting other people out. And start saying, well, you can't understand this because I went to this and you didn't. And I'm like, I'm trying to understand. Help me understand so I can be an ally. Um, and it, so what happens is you actually, you can actually shut out allies and you can, you can alienate people and you can sort of almost ghettoize a society even worse uh, by but, not letting them out. Yeah, but I was, but that's what I was getting to. Um, the, what Sarah's neg- the negative use of identity politics is when you try to use I- your identity to claim any kind of superiority. Whether, whether if that's in rights or in understanding of anything, right? So that's the neg, I think the way the negative use of it. But, but what about the, tr- um, now using these identities, using these labels, ex-Muslim, atheist, as Sam mentioned, the reason why he might not like do, using the word atheist is that it creates, uh, tribe, tribalism. Are you afraid of, ex-Muslims becoming tribal in their own groups? I mean, I think we might be along, you know, far away from that, but is that a concern at all? I see it all the time already. Oh, wait, ex-Muslims? No, I, I was saying about atheists in general. Like, atheists in general, there's a lot of tribalism that happens. Well, I have a way to fight tribalism within atheist communities, but I was wondering if that's a concern with ex-Muslim communities at all yet. Uh, I don't, you know, I wouldn't say so. And I, I don't know if it's ever, uh, I guess maybe I would disagree with you a little bit, Ali, in the sense of, of atheism, because what I've found is that there is something about the two dominant tribes, which is to say that the, the far, the left and the right are, are tribes that, that don't accept all of atheist claims, either of them, right? And we've all, just, I think, I've seen, I'm sure this in this, on this podcast and in previous version of this podcast, you guys must have discussed in depth, which is that there's, there are aspects of being an ex-Muslim that is not accepted by either yes. side. Um, and I think that is true of atheists in general, because atheists were the first to say that Islam is, you know, why well, maybe we're not cool with Islam, like maybe because they, they, they were logically consistent. They were saying, well, if, if we're going to say that Christians are wrong for XYZ and Jews are wrong for XYZ, of course, all this applies to, 
applies to uh, applies to Muslims. And that's when we saw the first real backlash uh, against atheism yeah. was when then they started to yeah when they started to to address Islam. And I think most people recognize this. So that's when that's when this first happened. What uh, the way that I interpret it is that atheists failed. You know, at least those new atheists failed to um, follow the dictates of 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 their tribe which is to say leftists like they followed to to they failed to follow that line d directly they said okay well now we, we disagree with this one point and in fact we're going to go in the other direction um and so i think to the extent that we are going to be ideologically cons consistent as atheists or as any one particular thing it's hard to be it's hard to be tribal if you're looking at modern political sides i mean that i don't there's nothing about leftists that are truly ideologically consistent and nothing about those on the rights that are actually ideologically consistent yeah i i think maybe when it comes to the it's not as much i wouldn't say uh probably maybe tribalism is the wrong word but i do think with a and i think this is a positive thing i think the, the moment you start having a little bit of uh, factioning and and a little bit of sectarianism, even to, for lack of a better word, that shows that a movement's gotten big. That shows that there's diversity of thought in, within the movement. Uh, you know, and, and everybody isn't thinking the same. And I, I I think that it's in a way it's the opposite of tribalism. And you know, you have atheists who come from the communist side. You have other atheists who are Anne Rand atheists. And, uh, they're they're completely different. They're they both reject religion uh, for completely different reasons, uh, but. You know, there are elements of it, and I, I think that they can uh, sort of talk to each other uh, as well. And I think that it can be productive, and it's, it's good to have ideological diversity I mean, that the, way. The gay rights movement was very successful in, in North America, and, and they, you know, they they don't, there's nothing, I don't think that they um, have in common other than people in the gay rights movement, other than the fact that they think that they are, they should be treated the same as others, right? I mean, I don't think the gay, the gay rights movement uh, became tribalistic. They never, it, it never ended up turning into something that they said that they are better than other people, right? Uh, it was very successful. They got together. They managed to get, uh, they have still a, have a lot of work to do, but they managed to get a lot of rights. They managed to uh, point out to a lot of discrimination against them and uh, won many battles. And, and we we are not afraid of that becoming a tribal. So I don't understand the fear of the atheist movement ever becoming, or the ex-Muslim movement becoming very I tribal. would say there's a distinction there in the sense that I've always, I use, I use, I borrow from the gay rights terminology quite a bit. And I'll like some Muslims do, I think out of the closet, being in the closet, like that's a common thing that we use. And we actually, part of life beyond faith, like when we did, when we did those videos, the idea was to say, Oh, there's the sex Muslim could be neighbor, your brother, your sister, you know, and that was the, the idea it was borrowed from some of the strategies that the gay rights movement used successfully in the past in the United States and truly like to great success. If you look at where they are now versus where they were 20 years ago. Um, having said that, I think this, this goes back a little bit to the identity politics point in the sense that there is a distinction between an identity that you can't help and an identity that you choose. Um, there should be a difference between um, me being the color of my skin. I can't help it. Everyone will, view me as a minority, whether or not I want to be viewed that way or whether or not I identify that way, it doesn't matter. I can see myself, I can, I can myself identify as, as a white person, but it, 
you know, and hearkening back to Aryan ancestors of, of South Asians or whatever have you, right? It doesn't matter because people will see my dark skin and they will view me a certain way. Well, there are certain things that I can't help, right? I can't help being a, I can't help being a biological female and I can't help being uh, the color of the skin that I am. So there are certain things you can't help and, and, and those aspects of your identity should be considered different than I- aspects that you choose. And Islam is something that you choose. And this is what pisses me off when people racialize the, the, uh, racialize Muslims. And, you know, you see in the, in, in the women's march where there's a white woman and then there's a black woman and there's a Latina woman and there's a Muslim. And I say, well, one of those was a choice. One of, one of those was true, but it's not presented as that. I have, this is, I have to say this, and this is for Omar Islam, if you're listening that I, I have a chapter in my book called A Tale of Two Identities that talks exactly about this. And it talks about inborn, inborn identities and acquired identities. And this is something that a lot of people have written about before. And, um, you know, the, the whole thing that if you're, if you're taking pride in an identity that you didn't work for, that you were just born into, like brown skin or whatever nationality you are, you know, that kind of thing, then you're... Um, that's the kind of stuff that starts wars. That's the kind of stuff that leads to genocides historically. On the other hand, if you're taking pride or in an identity that you chose, like even uh, whether it's parenting, whether it's your profession, whether it's the activism or the, the, that you chose, that is a completely different thing. Um, and and that's why I, I kind of disagree with the, Sam on the atheist label. I I think that that's uh, to some extent, okay, even though it's kind of I mean, borderline. The point uh, I was but, making, I know, I understand that being gay and being atheist, one of them is a choice and one of them is not. But the similarity, the similarity that I was pointing is that gays don't have anything in common other than being gay. They have many different opinions. And I think atheists also don't have, they understand, especially once they join the community, they notice that there's a whole bunch of them that they disagree with. They, there's a lot of opinions that uh, some of them come find ridiculous that other atheists hold. But what they could, what I think most of them could agree on is the fact that they shouldn't be treated as inferior for being atheists. That is enough for us to get together and build a movement out of it. And I think the disagreements are helpful. The fact that once we introduce them to each other, these disagreements and these internal fights between atheists and oryx muslims is helpful because it reduces the tribalistic nature because a lot of atheists before they sometimes are like oh i thought atheists were supposed to be more logical or supposed to be educated or smart well like no that's well good thing you now are you know good thing you joined the atheist movement and now you can see that that's not true there's um many dumb asshole atheists, racist atheists, or some people with good opinions, but not the same as yours. This, this introducing them to other ex-Muslims or atheists helps reduce that tribal, um, tribal attitude. But at the same time, even if we disagree with each other, we can't get together. And every ex-Muslim, I think, I, I don't, I don't know how could they disagree with this, but I think ex-Muslims could agree on this one fact that ex-Muslims shouldn't be treated as less than other people. Well, well, here's a difference, because I think the split isn't that they that we disagree on that one point. The difference is that there are disagreements on what policies we should take, what actions we should take from here on out to fix this original problem, right? So lefty ex-Muslims might think that, okay, the most important thing right now is to prevent the rise of the right. And whatever we can do, any tactic we can take is worth taking because because we perceive it as something that will 
that will um, bring down the right. And I think the the you know the opposite might be said of of people of, of people who take who take the right right wing view. So I don't think that what disagreement. Would you, what would you respond to that opinion if with someone with that opinion? What are your views on that? What are my views on that particular opinion? The opinion that anything is worth taking down the the right. Well, this is interesting because I I don't think the ex-Muslim issues are are singular in 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 this respect in that that there have been ways that the left has been kind of playing denial in terms of reality and in terms of what science says and what what we know for sure uh, for the sake of not giving the right wing any ammunition and um this is recently just recently yesterday and the day before there's been this hoopla of steven pinker with the speech that he gave um, at, at Harvard, oh my God. which, yeah, by that's the way, ridiculous. I thought was yeah. wonderful. Like I thought, what he ha- what he had to say, no, I disagree. I I, I I agree with every bit of it. Um, but there was just just ridiculous. I, I I I simply do not understand how the people who disagree with him can 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 justify can justify their belief because well, they well, yeah. No, I'm I'm sorry. No, what I was gonna his what he was saying was actually um, he was talking about why the alt right and the far right are wrong, how their knowledge is selective, and they take selectively take these truths, and then uh, they they don't come up with the right conclusions, and how people on the left have an opportunity to uh, you know to do that correctly, but they don't because they just shut it out. And right, right, I, right. both sides missed that. I don't think either side got it. Yeah, right. No, I, I, and I guess to give context to the people who are listening to this who might not have heard of it, yeah, that's what that's what he was saying. That's what, what he was saying was that there are certain people who otherwise are intelligent and otherwise are, are reasonable seeming people who 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 find out some something that the left seem it seems to them that the left has been keeping from them. And then when they see that one fact, uh, they lose credibility. They, they don't feel like you know they can they can trust uh, the left that hasn't been truthful to them, and they start paying attention more to to the right wing who has acknowledged that this this un- inconvenient fact, this fact, whatever it is, exists. Um. Uh. What what is interesting about the response to that, that video is that people have taken. People have taken offense at him even acknowledging that this pattern exists. That even acknowledging that this that that that, that people see these realities and are 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 um, so disturbed by the fact that they might have never heard this fact before. That it might lead them astray, and that the left really doesn't provide a lot of a lot of answers. That it might lead them to to adopting alt right criticisms. Um, it's just so amazing to me that that people find. Uh, problems with him even articulating that this fact that this phenomenon might exist to truly say that he's wrong about this you have to prove that this phenomenon doesn't exist or something within his logic doesn't make any sense but again what they find problem with is that he is articulating those facts the exact point that he had which is left doesn't want to articulate these facts because of of that they're inconvenient to the overall narrative and they don't want to explain they don't want to contextualize these facts that was his whole point, um, and and people are still finding fault with him, even describing this phenomenon to, to to begin with. And I can't imagine how they think that this is going to help uh, the left wing. I I honestly see this as being incredibly toxic and incredibly destructive to progressive politics. 
Actually, when it comes to Islam, this is something we observe a lot because a lot of people from the left are not told the things that are mentioned uh, in the Quran, for example, or the truth about Islam. And the the right, unfortunately, a lot of people from the alt right also um, are know know the things in the in the Quran, and they're well prepared, and they come in and they when they come and they sound more knowledgeable, right? Mm -hmm. They sound they know the verses. I, I, some of them memorize parts of the Quran. I'm sh like white people that these are. I'm not talking about the good people on the right. I'm talking about actual bigots that really know their Quran. And these people come and say, "Oh, Islam is peaceful. There's no such thing in Islam." And they come and they have verses memorized. And when when you are blocking the left from the truth statements, you're making the alt-right seem more knowledgeable and more equipped with science and fact and actually understanding of religion. And we have a problem with some of their conclusions, but you know, the fact is that they are making more truth claims than the left is. And which is, yeah, I mean, we, we observe this, but, but this is the thing is that the problem with this is that when the, when the alt, not the right, but the alt-right and uh, keep saying these statements and, it sounds like a lot like the stuff that we are saying against Islam. A lot of people look at it and they say, well, you guys really sound like each other, right? And uh, recently, especially a lot of people are saying that ex-Muslims uh, ex are joining or too close to the right or um, are basically giving, helping the alt-right and they're being used by the alt-right. What, what would you tell, respond to people that make such claims? Uh, the fault of the person who ignores, if there is a fault that lies, that lies here at all, it does not lie on the person who, who spoke the truth. Now, who, who, especially when it comes to ex-Muslims, when you talk about the injustice that is done to us and point to the justifications of that injustice. The fault does not lie with us that someone was able to use it to further um, a harmful ideology. The fault lies with the opposition of, 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 of those, those bigots um, who are unable to grapple with our reality, who are unable to grapple with the injustice being done with us and, 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 you know, pull this in into their, their overall ideology and, and make some sort of sense with it. They were unable to do that. The failure is the failure of the left. It is not the failure of ex-Muslims who are talking about, well, here's here's what's being done to us. Here's how it's justified. Here are the verses of the Quran. We are people who are telling the truth of the, of, of things as they are and as as we experience them. Um, the fault is someone someone uses us to 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 push their own agenda. That's not our fault. The fault is is well theirs to use use you know reality and twist it in a way that it becomes something horrific and something nasty and something that those of us um who, who said those facts to begin with would disagree with um but uh, the fault also lies in their opposition who deny the reality don't if you deny but, the but reality, i had uh what about the i guess that another aspect of this would be the credibility question so like i'm on a highway i'm driving perfectly i'm following all the rules i'm doing exactly what i'm supposed to and then some crazy driver comes and it hits me Mm -hmm. Right now, I'd be like, it totally wasn't my fault. I had nothing to do with it, but I, I do have whiplash. And now, you know, I do have to take time off. I have to pay for car repairs or whatever. So I, uh, one of the questions is that does this, uh, when the work that we do, and, you know, Armin and I have discussed this before as well, 
is that the stuff that we do is the fact that a lot of people on the far right and so on and the the Trump crowd are embracing us, embracing what we're saying. Is that is our credibility taking a hit? And if so, what do we do to counter it? But has it made our work harder? Uh, the credit, like the kind of things that, for example, you know, what we do is we sit here, we criticize Islam, we talk about that. And so a lot of times, you know, I will get support that I don't necessarily want from people who just want all Muslims kicked out of the country or whatever sure. it is. So, um, and then, you know, other people say, well, you know, you're saying exactly what that alt-right guy was saying. So I don't want to listen to any of you. So when that kind of thing happens, does that harm what we want to do if we are being lumped, if there's a perception that we are being lumped with them, which, I mean, none of us are. The vast majority of people I know uh, in the ex-Muslim community are completely consistent when it comes to this, and they despise mm-hmm. that kind of support. Right. But uh, we do get lumped in together. Um, so from a public perception point of view, if we are to have any credibility and say what we're saying, um, is there a way to counter it? And, uh, well, here's um, my kind of a pessimistic view <laughs> lately that I've taken on when it comes to this. Bring it on. That, um, which is that um, it is it is it is a, a terrible reality that ex-Muslims are are not convenient for both the left or the right. Um, neither of them will find us very useful. The best we can hope for is to you know, tweet enough things about, you know, being anti-Trump or anti-right wing that, that some of those right wing people will just fall off, you know, shake them off, uh, the best we can. It's the best we can hope for. We can, we can hope for being inconvenient to them too. We can't, what, what we're not doing is convincing the right or convincing the left to become any more friendly to us. They're, they view us an inconvenient and, 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 we can try and remind the right that we are actually inconvenient to them as as well. Um, this puts us in a in. I, I agree with yeah, you. This yeah. puts us in a in a terrible predicament in the sense that how, who 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 can we count on to actually uh, to, to to actually take the actions we want them to take to actually understand the world as we see it and to take us seriously. Um, and to understand the whole of our criticism, not just an as- the aspect of it that they, that they find convenient. The answer is Muslims. The answer is forget, yeah, the answer, yeah. because, yeah. because a lot of, not, not, I'm not talking about liberal Muslims, conservative t- m- mainstream Muslims that care about truth claims, they take us seriously yep. because they, they, they understand that the gravity of what we're talking about. So uh, that's why I'm thinking like maybe. Yeah, that, that's the next step. That's the next You're step. Right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not. I'm not unhappy with um, the bigots followers that I get or the far left followers that I get because you know I, if we we see ISIS people leave Islam and if ISIS people uh, leave Islam, I mean I notice uh, at least some of the people that have been retweeting a lot of my tweets or following me and commenting. I've noticed even from some of the far right people, they're, they're, some of them, their attitude towards things have changed. Like yeah. They joined on the bandwagon of being anti-Muslim, anti-Islam, and now they they are changing. They're, I don't know if they're pretending or if it's real, but they are saying like, no, I'm not anti-Muslim, I'm just anti-Islam. 
I I think that's a good thing. I see some of them changing the way they talk. So I think maybe we might have an influence on some people on the uh, alt-right and also a lot of people on the regressive left. Uh, mm-hmm. I've noticed a lot of people, a lot of my friends used to be like, oh, I used to be a social, ju- I'm an ex-social justice warrior. I keep hearing that more often. So, yeah. I, I mean, I, I, I hear that at every talk, every talk that I've ever done. There's always been somebody who's come up and said, okay, you know, I used to be a regressive leftist, and now I think. Yeah, I mean, even I mean, yeah. I'm, even Nazi, ex Nazis. Yeah. We have ex Nazis, right? Lots of ex Nazis. So nobody, I think, is we shouldn't. I think we shouldn't be like, oh, I'm not happy with these followers that I'm getting. No, get, get them. Try to convince them of um, a different way of looking at things. But that was just me ranting. But my 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 question though is that people will say you say. You know, people on the left deny reality, but then the response to that is that this is not you're you're ex-Muslim of North America. You're not ex-Muslim of Iran. You're not ex-Muslims of Pakistan. You're not ex-Muslim of Bangladesh or Saudi Arabia. This is not your reality. This is mm-hmm. this is a reality of ex-Muslims in other places. In 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 this political climate in the West, we have the rise of the alt right. We have new Nazis coming back. We have the era of trump you have to mm-hmm. take the, this pol- you, civil rights you have and, to take yeah, this well. political climate into account and adjust your tone accordingly mm-hmm. that's what what would you respond to that well well uh, let me i think there were there was um well, there's so much to be said about that and about how people uh, who who is first of all the right authority to judge the right tone to take in this scenario, because that's what I want to know, because everybody thinks that they are, they are, that they have it exactly the right way. And they're taking exactly the right tone. What I've seen is distinctions uh, between activists, um, not necessarily in how right wing or left wing there are, but how much tolerance they give to people who don't see things exactly the same way as they do. Right. So there's there, I, I've noticed people on both the right and the left where you're either, you're one step away from they are, and you're too far. You know, you're, 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 you're too far just by being that little, you know, uh, microscopic, uh, uh, step away from, from where they happen to be. And I've seen people both on the right and the left who are very tolerant of people who are truly far away from, 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 from them politically. Um, and I think there's something to be said about that mindset, which is to say that it, it acknowledges that I may believe whatever I believe strong enough that I will speak about it, that I will share it, that I will advocate for it. Uh, but I, but I, but I acknowledge that even I am fallible, that even, even I am fallible enough that I will not condemn a fellow, you know, a person who I deem to be otherwise honest, um, based on disagreements, because it may be the fact that I'm wrong. Um, and there's something to be said about, about humility in, in, when we're discussing who to condemn as being too far right or too far left to begin with, um, because I have a good amount of, um, of, of, of doubt. I hope, and I, I, and I feel strong, I feel strongly enough about my opinions that I will, that I will champion them, that I will speak about them, that I will share them in my videos and I will, um, talk about them in, in podcasts and I will talk a tweet about whatever I feel, but do I feel strong enough to say that, well, Ali, you're not doing it exactly the same way I'm doing it. So fuck you. 
and 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 you know how dare you and and obviously this means that you're you're deranged SJW or drained. I mean I think I mean, there was something you said about about Oprah oh like my right God, the Oprah thing is... like recently you were like I am the Oprah. I'm the only one who thinks that you're, I'm the only one who well so but that's that's a whole different so thing maybe you're cool. right here's the thing. Okay, so there's a there's this idea that uh, Oprah should run for president for 2020, and there's people that are disagreeing and so on there for a variety of reasons, good reasons and bad reasons. And I've seen, you know, I saw Ali that you tweeted like, "Yay, really? Oprah, Ali, 2020," the- and I was like, "Ooh, Oprah, 2020." Oh, I have um, so I have a I have a Facebook post that I will send this? you after this, okay. where I wrote an entire thing of so my uh, reason for that is actually a very cynical one. And uh, it's it has to do with the fact that I actually believe that I think Trump is going to win in 2020. And I think the only kind of person who can beat him is someone who knows what an audience wants and gives it to them because he is incredibly good at that. But I won't elaborate on that too much right now. I'll send you the sure, Facebook sure, post. Sure. And but can it, let's say that. I see it, what you have to say at the face of it. And I just say, yeah, yeah. you know, fuck that guy. Um, there's a, there's a way that I can be interacting with you that would be truly toxic to the atmosphere and to the dialogue as a whole. You know, but part of me not condemning you directly or you not condemning me just on the face of that disagreement is that both of us have like a certain sense of, okay, well, I feel strong enough that I'll stand for this for for my belief. But I understand that I myself and an individual with emotions that I have an ego that operates and and, you know, I would like to be, you know, perfectly rational all the time, but that it's there. And this leads me this understanding of my own humanity. um means that I must forgive others when when I feel like they're crossing the line too far in one direction or in the other because in, in fact it may be that it is me who has crossed the line too far in one direction but, but my my response to them would be that you know the truth is not local the truth the truth is the truth whether you're in Pakistan or in Saudi Arabia or in the United States and Sarah I think you you probably have a global audience right I mean I know oh yeah yeah no I have a pretty global audience and well actually Armin I didn't answer that one question that you said which who are you as North Americans to not to not care but I think with ex-Muslims in particular because of how immigrant of an audience we are it's kind of a silly thing to say because almost all of us have tons of ties back home if not you know, just if we're not recent immigrants and then we're people who have like close relatives that are back home and we care about uh, the reality of the Muslim world. It's not as if we like left and like cut ties altogether. So that would be my response to that. Like from just from that perspective. It and, and, you know, the number one followers, the number one country when it comes to the followers of Atheist Republic is Pakistan. Right. So I and, mm-hmm. yeah, and just makes. And and I know and oh, I, we're I know full of it. and like, I know that even though so you're ex Muslims of North America, I keep seeing your contents and videos from people that are not in North America that are that are in Islamic countries. I mean, the fact when they say we have to pay, take the political climate into consideration, they're they're being very narrow minded. They're lo- focusing on their mm-hmm. own neighborhood. They're fo- they're forgetting the global the community. They're forgetting people in Yemen. They're forgetting people in Bangladesh. Bloggers it's in Bangladesh. Yeah, exactly. It's, yeah. It's, it is. It's 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 actually America centric, and I, I've told people this. They're like, "What about the political climate?" I'm like, "Well, there is a global political climate yep. in 52 countries. Mm-hmm. You know, that is really brutal as well." And I'm not saying that we shouldn't talk about what we have here. We have to be careful of it, but there's also um, everything out there, and that those people haven't. We can't abandon people like Raif Badawi or all the Bangladeshi bloggers just because 
you know, um, this stuff, at, at least over here, we have a, a, a set of checks and balances, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, so Sarah, I think we're kind of running out of time. So thank you for being generous with it. But I, I, I wanted to say two things. One is I wanted to kind of go back to what we were saying at, uh, you know, bring in an analogy for the, the whole Steven Pinker, um, controversy is that, you know, Hitler and the Nazis based a lot of their conclusions on Darwinism mm-hmm. and on evolution. Mm-hmm. So they use evolution as a basis to justify what they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Now, if people on the left or even people who are opposing them, not necessarily people on the left, but people who are opposing them had just come up and denied evolution altogether and said that, you know, this is crap, don't even talk about it, that that would have been a huge, a lot more people would have joined the Nazis. You would have had a lot, a lot of scientists, you know, saying, well, at least they may not have joined the Nazis. That's an overstatement, but um, they would have been split. It would have been much, much harder to defeat them. And I think that that's, that's kind of a, one, one, a historical analog that people can keep in mind whenever, you know, they're looking at the whole, that whole controversy. Yeah, I made a video about that. People are saying what you're saying, even even if it's true, is too close to what the Nazis are saying. I like, well, I basically said, are you going to stop teaching evolution? Because that also sounds very exactly. close yeah. to it. Yeah, they yeah. use that for their, for their they, when they were gassing the Jews, they used evolution as their, as their excuse. So should we ban teaching evolution in schools? Exactly. They had, and they had, the, they had that basic fact, right? They selectively looked at it and came up with the wrong conclusions. But anyway, um, last question for you, Sarah. Uh, when are you going to start running for office? Oh well, you know, I, I was born in Pakistan, so that means that I'm not. I'm well, not, you can't be you can't be president. I can't but be Arnold president. Schwarzenegger. I mean, what was else governor was? of California? <laughs> well, I mean, there's I, a, know, there's Congress. There's I mean, there's a Senate. There's a governorship. There's well, all kinds th- of things. I think I think what you said just because I think I think we just just you two right there have touched on such an important such an important point, which is that yeah. That, but we that, are we are going to come back to this afterwards. I just want to say. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, which is that that, that <laughs> just, you know where where is um that that reality and as it is might not necessarily uh, aid our 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 values and the way that we see society um necessarily, but but that doesn't actually take away from the importance of those values. So we recognize that you know that 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 all human beings aren't don't have the same level of intellect. We understand that. We recognize that. Intuitively, and we actually know that statistically now, but we we still feel like each individual has dignity, um, and we still feel that as a whole in a society, it's beneficial for us to view us all individually and to give us all the same sort of sort of chances and to allow us all the same sorts of uh, of of privileges and, and and rights. And we see that, and we see the benefits of that. And it's not a difficult argument to make, um, unless it's it's something that you're not. You're not actually, unless it's something that you don't actually believe. And this is, um, this is what, um, frightens me about this kind of discourse, which is that it feels like the people that are avoiding reality, um, because of where it might lead themselves are kind of acknowledging that, well, if I, I understand the reasons why someone might go in, in this, horrible like right-wing bigoted way i understand it they're actually acknowledging that they themselves may be moved by that by by that reasoning if you were to acknowledge reality um but the way that we've seen history progress is that we've seen we've seen that pretending like reality isn't reality has never worked 
It has never worked because reality always comes back to haunt you. We always get better and better at measuring it and we get better and better at acknowledging it. If we don't want acknowledging it, okay, the Chinese will, right? The, like the Indians will, someone will, they'll talk about it and they'll, they'll bring it out into the public sphere, whether we like it or not. So we might be the, we might as well be the ones to, to say, well, okay, this, these facts exist, but none of that changes the values that we ascribe to, right? It might be the case that maybe Muslims are committing a disproportionate amount of, 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 of terrorist attacks. And I, I'm just saying this. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I well, I mean, yeah, that, and uh, just that eight-minute clip of Stephen Pinker. Make sure you see the eight-minute clip. Anybody who's listening to to it, and make sure you read the second half because you know what he talks about is not just accepting these facts and recognizing them, but how to put them in context. And that is a responsibility of rational thinkers. And that's something that a lot of people on the far right and alt right are using these for their narrative are not doing. And that is an opportunity that we're all missing out on. Mm-hmm. And we can actually have a more meaningful discourse. We can even correct the course. But, you know, when, when you're shouting out, oh, bigot and, you know, racist and stuff all the time, and I, it, this is a little weird to say because there are actual real bigots and racists out there right now. I and mean, we're watching a, there's a resurgence of that, like, not like I haven't seen recently, uh, but uh, it's still, it's not an argument. Right. You know, it's, when, it's when someone makes argument. a good argument, it's, it's, it's a substitute for an argument. It, it helps discourse. It truly, what, I think what you said right there, which is it makes the conversation more meaningful. I think that's absolutely true because it, it, it helps us understand, well, what is it? Why do we give, you know, um, citizenship this kind of dignity that we, that, that, that we give it? And what, what, why are, why do we value human rights the way that we value them? Is it because necessarily all of us are cap- cap- capable of the exact same things in life? You know, maybe not, but that's not why we value it. And that's not why this is important. And I think it can lead to a much more nuanced discussion, a much more meaningful discussion, a much more um, uh, even what I would consider, you know, progressive discussion, something that, that actually does put human dignity first and individualism first and understands um, the com- the, the complexity of all these issues, we can have that discussion and it would be so wonderful to participate in. But unfortunately, even if you bring up, if you just bring up a fact that other people find inconvenient, that, that disqualifies you from the discussion altogether or, 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 you know, uh, paints you as some, something, somebody who's too far right or too far yeah. left or whatever it is. Well, let's, let's hope we can move on from that. And, um, Sarah, thank you. I, I wanted to say on a, on a serious note, I, I do think that. You know, we are at the position where there are many of us, I, I think that running for office, you know, especially here, uh, you know, seriously, I think that's a, that's a good idea for people like yourself and, you know, a lot of other people that I can think of now. And uh, because that, that is really one way to get out there and, and start something that's, that's more grassroots and take it to the next level. Um, t- tell us your, uh, Twitter, your, uh, website, uh, where can people find you? Where can they find the videos? How can they get involved in the tour? Uh, so my, my Twitter is, is Sarah the hater. It's based on like what everyone said to me in middle school, because the name is, the name is actually Heather, right? That's the name. But the way that everybody, the way with English speaking people see it is a hater. hater. Yeah. Like, you're such a hater. So I was like <laughs> me as the hater. So I adopted it. And now I knew it's someone um, called Batool. And oh yeah! Guess what happened? Right, the tool, I have, I have the some tool. cousins who, are, who have that unfortunate name. Yeah. What does what does hither mean? Lion. Oh wow! Hmm. Lion. It was it was a nickname uh, given to um, given to Imam Ali. Oh yeah. 
That's why it's such a hey Shia. That? That's, that's why it's, it's a hey Shia. That? Oh wait, I think I know. I should know this. All right, never mind. Yeah, it's, hey, hey, that, it's a very, it's a Ali very Mala, Shia Heather name. Mala, Ali Mala, Heather Mala. You haven't heard that? Yeah. Or you don't have that hey, hey, Ali, I think. I think yeah, it's, 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 it's Ali's nickname. That's what it is. Ali, Ali, hey there. Oh, yeah, I think I've heard something. Yeah. Okay. Army, you're fake Shia. Yeah. Mm. You're fake oh, ex-Shia. Fake Shia. Okay. Hashtag. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, Go uh, on. yeah, so that, that's how I had that. You know, a lot of Shias get upset about me having that. <laughs> oh, how dare you? Um, but yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, so I, it's, it's Sarah the Hater. That's my Twitter. Uh, handle, but if you want to know more about ex-Muslims in North America, of which you know, I work with ex-Muslims in North America, um, we have the website exmna.org. We have a YouTube channel. We have a lot of videos on there that are, that are mentioned here from the Life Beyond Faith um, series and from the Normalizing Dissentor, of which um, many of us have, have taken part and many more will take part. And the idea is just to uplift ex-Muslims altogether. I think we've had a lot of interesting um, discussions there already. Armin was already a part of of, of yeah. some of the of, of some of the ones, and I'm, I'm sure Ali will be soon in the future. We've, we've had a yep. few, yeah. We've had some difficulties with with bureaucracy, but so far so good. Um, so please yeah. check those out. Go go watch the one, the last one the, with me, um, Muhammad and Imtiaz. There was a at the 40 minute mark. There was a there was a there was a, security had to come. Mm-hmm. That's what yeah, that, it was pretty yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. That was outrageous. What was going on? <laughs> what did you do, Armin? It has to be Armin. Go watch it. Wait, I'm not gonna, I thought I'm you not gonna were awesome, it. And Armin. I thought you were. You know, I don't know how uh, you. I don't know how you can do that because I can't. I can't manage that kind of like. Like I can't, I can't do that. I can't do it in the same. <laughs> He's, I, I love. It. He's so firebrand. He's like you know. I. It's really refreshing. It is. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go take the part that Sarah just said. I was awesome in it. I'm gonna just take trim that part out and i'm gonna put it on repeat on my youtube my own right YouTube and, and i want to i actually <laughs> want to say the highlight of this episode i i know sarah you're a guest but i also want to tell uh, the listeners to go and uh, follow armin navabi because right now there are iranian protests going on armin mm-hmm. has been absolutely at the forefront of these i mean there are uh, the major journalists across the world who have been um following him seeing his posts he's reporting videos and and uh, all kinds of things that are happening in iran right now so um it's a, it's a really really good feed to follow. Actually, right now is more important than before. Even even if you don't follow me, please, if you find any news about this, please post it. Where no matter where you get it, because it's more important right now than when the protests were happening. Because the new the news is not in, interested in the aftermath, and the government is waiting for the media to stop talking about it to start deciding what they're going to do to wow. the prisoners. There's wow. thirty seven hundred prisoners right now, and. Because once the media starts losing attention, the you know the the fact that the eyes are not there anymore, it could be big consequences for people that they have captured during the protest. So the protests that have died down, now we're looking at what the government's reaction is going to be to the people that they have arrested. And this is this paying attention to what's happening there right now is right now more important than when the protests were happening because people's lives depend on how much media scrutiny this gets. And and we had a we had a more extensive discussion on the if you're listening to this uh, the previous episode um you know we're going to put out uh, that Armin and I talked about it at length. Anyway, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank and you so much. It was great much, having Sarah. you on. We'd love to have you on again at some point too, you know. Yeah, uh, thank you for having year. me. This was fun. Yeah, it was awesome. Thank you for uh, people in the live chat, Obeyed, 
and the other people yep. that I, they have they don't have their real names on but thank you everybody the, for the questions and the support and thank you so much for Sarah for being here thank you the secular jihadists have been made possible thanks to the Illuminati and the covert support of Israel and the CIA that's what we have been told but we haven't received our checks yet if you like what we do, please support us. Share the podcast with your friends. Write and tweet us with topic and guest suggestions. Or head over to secularjihadist.com and give a dollar or more for exclusive access to live video. Have your questions read and answered on the air and more. Till next time, may the flying spaghetti monster be with you.